Hello there, welcome to episode 97 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Um, we are doing a bit, a bit of a different kind of episode this week where I've got a guest co-host in um, to uh, talk to our guest today. Um, and welcome to Mario from Symbolic Studies. Uh, give, give the audience a little bit of an intro to yourself and uh, what it is you do. Right on. Thanks for having me. So my project is called Symbolic Studies. So symbolicstudies.com if people are interested in any of my work. What I generally do is I follow each astrological sign during the sign itself and I publish content based around those signs. I've been doing that for a number of years now and uh, I also create uh, art prints based around the signs as well. So my main thing uh, publicly on my channel has been more so related to astrology but when I jump on podcasts like this, uh, I tend to bring up northern and polar symbolism, which is what we're here for uh, today, and which is how I found, uh, you know, who we're going to be talking to today, Wolfgang. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I first kind of got in, uh, found you uh, on uh, the one-on-one podcast, on One's podcast, and yeah, you do. You, that's pretty much where I first started to hear about the kind of polar stuff. Was what you talking about it? And also where I first heard about Polaria, I think, was on one of his shows a while ago like a month or so ago um yeah yeah that makes sense yeah but we should we should uh um you know talk about what it is we're actually going to be talking about so we're talking about a book called Polario and we're talking with the author who for a long time people thought was was Kenneth Grant <laughs> and it turns out he actually isn't Kenneth Grant is there is another author called WH Muller or Wolfgang Muller um tell us a little bit about Polario give us a kind of you know the cliff notes as it were or the uh, you know the the back cover <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. So Polaria is about polar and northern symbolism. So it's unapologetically about this topic. And he weaves in a lot of information related to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft as well and his lore and mythology, uh, the characters he writes about. And essentially, Wolfgang thinks that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's work was encoding polar symbolism, northern symbolism. And for me, I've been looking into this kind of material for a number of years now. So when I read it, I was all about it. And uh, a lot of what he said resonated with me. Um, but, you know, it, I feel like the book is so much more than that. I do think that it is kind of in line with some kind of, um, you know, I, I feel as though that the work is in line with maybe people who like Kenneth Grant. I think that they would like this work too. I read it thinking it was him until he reached out after the fact and said, no, I'm actually W.H. Uh, Mueller. I'm not <laughs> Kenneth Grant. This isn't a pen name or anything like that. But I kind of see it as almost a continuation of some of the things Grant was putting out about H.P. Lovecraft and some of the things he was talking about, say, in The Night Side of Eden, um, The Tunnels of Set. Um, he does talk about Northern symbolism to a certain degree, Ursa Major and Minor, the Pole Star. Um, set being related to uh, Ursa Major and things like that. And um, I think that uh, Wolfgang is kind of just more explicit, I guess, with mm -hmm. these sort of correspondences and, and tends to go um, way deeper on the polar angle, which for me was a huge blessing and, and I appreciate. And we, we talk about this in the interview, but Grant's kind of anchored a bit more in kind of Western esotericism, isn't he? And kind of Alistair Crowley's magic. And that he's kind of drawing, he's kind of blending almost... Yeah, I see what you mean. Muller's a lot more direct, isn't he? He doesn't seem to like use right. that kind of esoteric tradition kind of stuff, really. He sort of goes in directly into the kind of polar tradition stuff. There's no there's no Crowley involved or Golden Dawn involved. It's just pure kind of polar tradition kind of stuff, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Which 
you know, I was fascinated to learn that after the fact, he had never read Grant mm-hmm. um, until several years after he published this work. Oh, Crowley. And so that was one of my first <laughs> questions. Or Crowley, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was blown away at that fact. He said, no, I'd never read any of his stuff until I think it was like maybe five or six years later or something along those lines. Um, but yet, to me, it's in the same vein. Yeah. Um, there's so much overlapping information uh, that I saw personally. Yeah. Um, one thing we'll cut to the interview now, but one thing we should uh, mention to listeners or viewers is uh, Wolfgang's internet connection was a little bit squiffy uh, on on this interview. So there's there'll be a few edits that are a bit abrupt <laughs> because uh, his connection dropped quite a few times, didn't it? So uh, uh, yeah. So don't mind the editing. We're not cutting out any. Uh, you know, juicy information. We're literally just splicing <laughs> together the bits where his, his connections uh, gone down. So I thought I'd mention that here, just so in case people think oh, that's a bit weird, because I don't normally harshly edit like that. But uh, I'm going to have to on this one a little bit. But yeah, uh, thanks, uh, thanks so much for joining me on this interview. It's, it was really good, and let's cut over to that now. And I want to start? Okay. Um, my name is Wolfgang Müller, called Wolf, normally called Wolf. And um, I'm now, if my reckoning is right, if I don't forget anything, I'm 59 years of age now. Um, right, yeah. And I, um, I wrote Polaria in 95 and it got published in 96. And that was uh, about more than 10 years after I got... Um, I started delving into Lovecraft, Lovecraft, and uh, on all the various aspects and factors of his of his uh, so-called fiction. And um, I wrote my first book in 1992, which was Treasure of the Forbidden. It was never published in uh, in English. And after my second one um, on the Babylonian mythology and theology, um, which has connections with the so-called Necronomicon. Um, I started uh, working on Polaria, and that was a time when I, when I was very, um, very much uh, immersed in, in, in my love for France. I became France lover, and uh, touring around France, and um, yeah, delving into French literature as well on alchemy, Fulcanelli, authors like Fulcanelli, Cancelier, Ripley, Basil Valentine, all these you know staple publishers or staple authors, and. Um, and then I authored Polaria, and um, since then um, I've been working on several subjects um, related to Lovecraft, like uh, Hebrew Kabbalah and um, other sorts of um, directions that you know that um, yeah that ramification that's called ramifications from the basic Lovecraft subject. And um, in my last, my most recent book is uh, Necro Yoga which involves uh, many practical uh, techniques, uh, sex magical techniques as well, and a new, uh, a new interpretation of the Babylonian epic of creation in relation to Lovecraft and some of his uh, mythos elements. Uh, so that's my latest, actually. Um, I've started, the problem with Polaria is it's really hard to get hold of in a physical copy of the book. And um, I'm terrible reading off screen, so I've been slowly reading Polaria because it's quite... Um, the text is quite dense, so you have to kind of go back on yourself a lot, I find. Well, I do anyway, um, to kind of, you know, I'm not as steeped in this kind of polar 
tradition, I suppose. So for me, I'm having to kind of constantly go back and reread bits. And um, but so, but I thought it'd be interesting to get the two of you together, and we because it is a really interesting book. It's a fascinating topic as well. Um, but I thought, yeah, it'd be good to get the two of you together and kind of almost sort of like curate a discussion between the two of you on this particular subject because it's something that I'm really keen to learn about. Um, and you know, I, I have some some questions as well. But I guess what what is it that um, first of all, I suppose actually, Wolfgang or Wolf, um, what what is your take on Kenneth Grant's interpretation of of H.P. Lovecraft? Have you have you ever um, read any of Grant's work or? Well, the funny thing is that uh, I never read I'd never read um, anything by Kenneth Grant at the time I wrote Polaria. So all the rumors that go like I'm Kenneth Grant or I was I was familiar with him or even in touch with him are absolutely nonsense. Um, fact is that I, the first the first uh, Kenneth Grant book I read was uh, Nights Out of Eden, and I did it. Um, it was after the millennium, so it's um, it's almost uh, more than twenty years ago. Uh, before that time, I know I knew him, of course, I knew his name, but um, I never got around to to read anything. Um, it was hard at that time to get copies in German and in Germany because um, at that time he wasn't translated. Now uh, you get uh, you get him uh, in the German translation, some of his books at least. Um, at that time, the eighties or nineties, it was absolutely no way to get something, and um, that was the reason I didn't read him. So uh, at the time I wrote Polaria, I was completely, um, yeah, I never I never thought of him. You know, and uh, so I developed my own ideas, my own um, theories, and my own conceptions um, as far as the Lovecraftian elements are concerned. And I was never really content with his um, interpretation of certain words Lovecraft used, certain encoded words like Yorksatoth or Shubnigurath. Uh, and um, I always found his um, interpretations shallow, a bit, um, or shall I put it, a bit, a bit too mainstream mythological, and um, that's why I, yeah, I developed my own ways finding out more about them. I think the thing with uh, Grant, especially around the time you're talking about, like the eighties, nineties, he was kind of a bit of a, especially within the sort of Thelemic communities, he was definitely a bit of an outcast because he. Purely because he'd incorporated stuff like Lovecraft into kind of a, a Crowley kind of framework, and I think maybe that kind of coloured his interpretations of Lovecraft as well. I think if you look at the way he's using Lovecraft, it's definitely That's true. yeah, it's very um, it comes from a very Crowleyan perspective a lot of the time. So he's trying to kind of combine, I guess, more Western esoteric kind of tradition terms with Lovecraft, isn't he? So uh, he's so maybe that's where the the kind of difference lies in a way. He's he's far more coloured by Crowley, by Spare, by all these kind of uh, writers. Whereas perhaps you're not. I don't know. What are your are you schooled in Crowley and the you know Golden Dawn that kind of thing? Or um, well, I I had never read anything by Crowley um, until after the Millennium. I think that was for me. It was kind of a break. And um, when I started, um, when I when I started studying uh, Kabbalah, I got into Crowley, and that was the first time actually. Um, of course, I had heard about heard, heard of him, and, um, uh, read some articles and stuff, but I never really um, uh, got into him, into his into his uh, theories on magic. Um, so it was it was completely alien to me uh, at the time, 
in the nineties. Um, yeah, but you're right. He's he's in the, he works within the Crawlian and um, uh, Thalamic uh, framework, which all always kind of put me off because I got in contact with the OTO, the local OTO, in the end of the nineties, and I was really put put off by this more or less um, a company, a, a band of um, how should I put it, um, half drugged. Um, crazed, um, esoteric uh, freaks, and um, <laughs> that sounds more or less right. um, dabbling, dabbling in a very superficial way with magic, you know. And uh, I remember uh, conversations with these people, and they would uh, sit down, and um, after having a, a bottle of vodka, they would sit down and uh, and and then perform a Babylonian sort of stuff. And um, well, wild times at that time, but uh, I was never really into that. No, so I, I, I went away. That's the, I mean, I used to be a member of the ATO, and that's um, that's one of oh, the. That's fine. It's the, the, the ATO bodies tend to be different around the world, but actually, that is a common thread that there's a lot of drinking and a yeah. lot of um, yeah, and actually, that was kind of a bit off putting to me as well as the, uh, the amount of I don't know. I, I think if you're dealing with these kinds of uh, let's say forces for use of a better word um you should probably be of in the right state of mind to be able to <laughs> to do it properly and yeah that you do i mean whatever that, is, whatever that is you know whatever that is yeah yeah and it's uh you know i don't think necessarily i mean even crowley struggled with the ideas of um you know being on drugs or drunk when performing magic you know obviously he was you know had he had his own issues but um even he you know you if you read his writings he's he talks quite a lot about he seems to be unsure whether it's a good idea or not um i i personally from experience i don't think necessarily think it's a, a great idea to be a um yeah so were you in in germany around that sort of time then yes i lived in germany i'm germany yeah, i lived in germany and i got in contact with a local audio mm, okay interesting. Uh, which i'm based in berlin now and i was based in berlin at the time as well when i wrote polaria i was based in london i lived in london for 10 years so I wrote, I wrote Polaria in London. Uh, so, um, yeah, but at that time I was, um, I contacted the local OTO, which, which was, um, which was expelled from Berlin actually, uh, by the, by the Holy Inquisition. That's no joke. Um, I think up to the nineties or even, even now, there's some kind of inquisition going on. Uh, and it was the, uh, I think it was the, the Protestant church. It wasn't the Catholic church or the Protestant church. And they, they were really um, upset about the behavior of some of the members. And there were allegations of, of rape and, um, you know, any kind of criminal offenses. So they managed to, to um, expel them from Berlin at the end of the 80s. And sure. then they moved on into Germany, into the um, rural areas. But then again, they got trouble there. I heard stories that they were not really welcome in a small town somewhere in, uh, in Western Germany. And they had trouble with people there because uh, the, the, the house where they lived, it was a, a big community house. It was called a witch house. And um, so they were made for the rituals, which actually happened, which was uh, which, which somebody told me. Uh, so they went to yeah rather strange activities which I couldn't share. I mean, I'm not in that kind of stuff at all. So um, I prefer to stay away from them. Mm. It's interesting that you yeah you said you're writing a book about sex magic, but that seems to be a big 
a big deal in Germany. Like obviously you've got like the Fraternitas Saturni and the original version of the OTO, which, you know, before Crowley was formed in Germany and they were um, a lot more sex magic heavy um, than, than other groups. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I know. And funny thing is funny to think to notice, uh, the guy who found, who was the German um, head of the OTO, mm-hmm. uh, Karl Germer, I think it was Karl Germer. Germer and He lived Royce, around the corner. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> on the corner in number nine, which is, I, I live on a lake to the back of my house. It's a big lake. And there's a, a promenade, and he lived right on the promenade of the lake, so it's uh, just around the corner, and that's the place where Crowley stayed as well. Interesting. Yeah, there was. Um, well, <clears throat> we were talking to. Uh, we had a guy on recently called Frata UD, um, or a guy called Ralph. Um, he's he's uh, written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know my name. Yeah. yeah, he was very involved with the setting up of the IoT and the kind of chaos magic early days of chaos magic and um he's a member of the fraternitas attorney but it sounds like there's a there's a real rich history of, of magic in 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 germany which i find kind of really interesting you know uh, we it's kind of legendary in england the german um is it really yeah which is interesting whereas apparently it's the other way around in germany according to um Frata ud he was saying well actually it was when you know we were doing magic it was always england that was always the um, the kind of you know the the center of magic for them or whatever but it's it's yeah it's funny how that works i'd be interested in mario if you talk a bit about your research you're saying that you'd spent a while conducting research on uh, polar magic and this northern kind of so i'm kind of interested yeah. in it, like what led you into that like what got you into that kind of um area of magic and what were you sort of studying before that right sure so i would say that my interest in sort of the polar northern uh, symbolic angle started probably in 2014 2015 somewhere around there and when I found out that Polaris was the center of the heavens, essentially, from the perspective of Earth, all of the stars revolve around Polaris, the North Star, right? And so to me, this was really interesting, and I felt like I wanted to know more about it. And I had this um, insight that, you know, in today's world, the, the way I tend to look at things, so I'll, I'm kind of going back and forth here, but uh, I think we live in a solarized world. And so I think solar symbolism the reverence for the sun um, is kind of overemphasized in today's world. But over the years, as I've done research, I've realized, and thanks to guys like Wolfgang here, you know, um, I realized that it seems as though this is just my perspective. Other people have written things along these lines, but that there have been three major symbolic traditions over time. And so we currently live in a solar age. Previous to that, it appears to be that there was a lunar age. Previous to that is the stellar or polar age. And so these three traditions have coexisted at the same time. But to me, it seems like a lot of symbols uh, became solarized over time. And there's even deities that became solarized over time as well. Where back in the day, my understanding is that there are certain deities that were known as being northern polar gods, essentially. Um you could even say that um, someone like Christ, as an example, he became solarized over time, you know, that actually early Christ, um, you know, was way more mercurial in nature. And Mercury plays a big, big part in the sol- sort of uh, solarization, uh, excuse me, Mercury plays a pretty big part in the polar tradition in Northern symbolism. But I think even his essence has become solarized over time. And so... Um, 
my interest really began, to be honest with you, was looking into um, alternative cosmologies, cosmographies. You know, where do we live? Um, what's the nature of Earth, as an example? So I started personally entertaining geocentrism, uh, the, the idea that perhaps everything is revolving around us. The, the heliocentric versus geocentric debate, to me, really funnels down to an idea of what's spinning. Are the heavens above us spinning or is the land that we live on, the soil underneath our feet, is that spinning? And so this debate has been going on forever. And so um, when I started looking into that, I noticed that um, geocentric sort of cosmologies placed more emphasis on the northern sky, on the North Star, on Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, on the North Pole. Um, there is this idea called the world axis or axis mundi, and it's this sort of bridge between the northern portion of Earth and the northern sky. And, um, you know, some people have said that this is the real stairway to heaven, right? This is uh, the middle pillar in Freemasonry. So when you look at the three pillars in the Kabbalah, that central pillar is the pillar of transcendence. And the hidden sephiroth, Doth, uh, corresponds with the north. And so um, the other two pillars are lunar and solar. So I started noticing this over time that uh, in esoteric illustrations and things like that, there would be something solar, something lunar, but there would be this third thing, you know, this, this third element. Sometimes it's mercurial. Um, sometimes it's related to the all-seeing eye. I did a presentation about the all-seeing eye, uh, linking it to this central pillar of transcendence to this world axis. You'll see Masonic tracing boards and the central pillar sometimes has that eye of providence on it. And generally it's shooting through the heavens and oftentimes it's associated with the East as well which is kind of a whole rabbit hole of why is it associated with the East? Um, and so to me, when I look at the polar Northern tradition, I see that it's really the foundation for a lot of religious symbolism today. And it appears as though that when you really, really decode mythology, when you really decode um, a lot of esoteric symbols, I feel as though that everything goes back to this earlier polar stellar tradition which is uh, way more feminine in nature. So as the world got more solarized, I think a lot of deities and a lot of myths became more masculine as well. Um, and I see that there is a relationship between the stellar polar tradition and the left-hand path. And uh, a lot of traditions that are associated with the sun tend to be more right-hand path kind of in nature. And when I say that, I think that there's a positive and a negative left-hand path. I think that there's a positive and a negative right-hand path personally. Um, but at the end of the day, what I kind of see though, is that a lot of my symbolic foundation was, um, with the stars was with astrology. And at a certain point I kind of realized, I'm like, you know, astrology, all of the signs along the Zodiac, you know, it's the path of the sun, it's the ecliptic. Um, there were other traditions though, before solar worship, there were other traditions before the prominence of the sun. And so in a lot of ways, uh, these planets, the, the main planets, seven or nine planets, depending on, you know, what system you follow, um, these appear to be newer gods. Um, but the northern sort of symbolism really taps into an older uh, classification of deity. And that's kind of one of my interests is kind of noticing that 
the pole star is is related to this um, imperishable, sort of timeless kind of quality to these older gods, to these older deities. Um, and a lot of what people think is kind of the end-all, be-all symbolic framework for today, like astrology, uh, it appears to be a, a more new than not, and that a lot of solar symbolism is uh, is fairly young, actually. And so if you look in the tarot, the major arcana, there's the star card followed by the moon card followed by the sun card. All of these cards actually perfectly, beautifully, symbolically represent these three different traditions, the uh, solar tradition, lunar tradition, stellar polar tradition. And so um, so to me, it, it this symbolism is uh, the root of, of a lot of uh, symbols that you see before you. So you see the circumpunct, the circle with the dot in it. You know, people are going to say that that's the symbol for the sun. I see it as a polar symbol. And I'm kind of inclined to think that even the cross is actually just a polar symbol. But most modern people will see that as a solar symbol. Um, I'm also inclined to think kind of along the lines with the cosmography and cosmology angle that I actually think we live in a polar system, not a solar system that there's been this flip between polar symbolism and, and solar symbolism. And even uh, a great book that I read before I read Polaria, it's called The Night of the Gods by John O'Neill. It was published in the late 1800s. He has a whole chapter called Polar versus Solar Worship. And he talks about the solarization of a lot of ancient polar symbols. And so um, that's a bit of a background on, on kind of you know, my personal angle with everything. I think that there's a relationship with polar symbolism and, and the world tree or the cosmic tree, you know, uh, the heavens as a wheel, you know, axial symbolism is really a, a very important thing. And so, um, yeah, I would say it, it started off with my geocentric sort of interest and kind of went from there. Yeah, it's I mean, and I can see why Lovecraft comes into that mix then as well. Um, one thing that's interesting about Lovecraft and why I think Kenneth Grant got so much uh, kind of pushback when he started to try and introduce Lovecraft into the OTO and into um, his system of magic, uh, into more into the more Crowleyan system of magic, um, it's, it's because I, it's Lovecraft himself said that he wasn't interested in the occult, didn't he? And he said that he wasn't interested in... Um, he, what he 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 said that he wasn't secretly writing occult text. However, there's nothing to say. I I've read a lot of a lot of Lovecraft, if not all of Lovecraft, I think. And um, I I read that and I think, are you sure? <laughs> Do you know, you read some of Lovecraft's text and you think, I I think he's more into the occult than he let, let than he definitely let on, and possibly he was. Um, Maybe he feared stigmatization or something or something like that, because obviously the occult doesn't have, especially around his time, didn't have the greatest reputation, did it? <laughs> so it, there is this sort of part of me that thinks, yeah, maybe you guys are right when it comes to, uh, and, and Grant was right as well when it comes to Lovecraft and the way he seemed to receive his characters and his, um, you know, they seem to come through dreams and through these like hypnagogic states. And it sounds a lot like a cult to me <laughs> do you know what i mean it sounds like so i can see why um i can see why a there was a pushback for grant especially um but b i can see why grant thought that way and also why i assume wolf also felt that way but so i don't i don't know uh, how did you kind of bring these two things together wolf like what was the uh what was the um the you know what why lovecraft essentially <clears throat> Why Lovecraft for me? Or why why I got why I was um, so attracted by Lovecraft? Mm -hmm. You mean? Or yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> um, 
the first story, as far as I remember, the first story I read was at the Mountains of Madness. And uh, it struck a chord in me because um, I was, I instinctively, obviously, I, I wasn't aware of that at that time. When I, when I started it at uh, the beginning of the 80s, um, I felt instinctively the otherness in Lovecraft. As far as I remember, I was always someone um, discontent with mainstream explanations and uh, mainstream theories concerning the universe and uh, how things are supposed to be. So I felt attractive. I felt like a, it's like, like a surge, you know, and um, felt attracted by the, the otherness in Lovecraft. And for me, from the first moment onward, it was absolutely clear beyond a doubt that Lovecraft um, used uh, the medium of fiction or so-called fiction, pseudo-fiction, to transmit a unique kind of knowledge, a unique kind of um, tradition and insight in a certain tradition, um, use this medium of fiction as a, a medium, fiction as a medium. So I went about to, um, to find out um, the mechanisms in Lovecraft and how he managed to create such an atmosphere at the same time transmitting fact. I mean, you have a fictional, more or less fictional wraparound story and you have a, a, a core, a core secret, a core fact in it. And that's, um, that's ingenious to, to write a story like that. And that's, that's I think, uh, part of the recipe of success uh, um, of Lovecraft stories, because people instinctively feel that there is something behind, beyond that, that uh, you know, florid fiction work he produced. And uh, yes, and then I, I dived into Lovecraft and found um, that there was an occult, is, is an occult tradition behind him. And my first book, Treasure on the Forbidden, was on the um, on his biographical relationship. I mean, there are certain points in his biography which are really strange. For example, um, the name Abdul Hazred, for example. Um, he was named Abdul Hazred uh, from the age of six. And um, he was, I mean, the age of six, you're a kid. You have no clue of anything. So um, there must have been a reason, I suppose. And then I delved deeply into his uh, biography and found very strange um, events in his life that argue synchronicity. His life was a symbol, and it can be compared to the life of other people, occult people, very famous occult people, like Crowley, for example. He lived a symbolic life, and he, all his life he was busy transmitting what came through him, ran through him, was channeled through him. And uh, I'm sure today that he wasn't always uh, he wasn't always certain what things are about. He just uh, produced it and tried to um, put it down in his language or the way he could um, imagine it or uh, yeah, clad it or clo clo clothe it in words. Very hard at times. So um, he came up with very bizarre images. For example, like. Um, um, Images uh, you find you find in stories like uh, Call of Cthulhu, or, or um, even at the Mountains of Madness, where you have this city, this absolutely crazy city, alien, more than alien architecture. They find in Antarctica, and um, very bizarre um, details. But one thing, and this is the thing uh, Maria mentioned, the polar symbolism. 
is very prominent in Lovecraft. And that would struck me from the first time I wrote it because Antarctica is the South Pole. And um, I've, I've been always drawn to Antarctica for some reason. And um, that's why Antarctica is, is fascinating for me until the present day. And starting from the meaning of the South Pole and trying to study the meaning, the occult meaning of the South Pole, the South in tradition in, in Kabbalah, for example, uh, I went on and came um, and came into, yeah, and, and entered into more details on polar symbolism in general, like the North Pole and the, the world axis and East and West and North and South and all that. So um, it was, I was in, in a sense spreading out, you know, my interest was spreading out. But the core secret of Lovecraft is a secret tradition, which is absolutely alien. As he rightly said, I think it was in uh, Call of Cthulhu, a tradition which is unknown beyond its members. It is virtually unknown. And all religions, all traditions, everything you can get hold of are just an echo, more or less um, precise, accurate echo of that original primordial tradition and that tradition is basically polar and that's where we come uh, to polar symbolism at the core of lovecraft and um and prominent uh, in his in his fiction is antarctica and um that's, that's why antarctica has become such a focal point in recent days in 2016 there was it started there was a phenomenon starting in antarctica that uh, news came out um, on various channels that um the fallen angels, for some reason, the fallen angels, Nephilim, were rediscovered or are back on Earth. Very strange news. And um, it is no secret to tell, and I wrote it in some of my books, that Lovecraft's version of the Nephilim, which means giants, is old ones, the great old ones, the great gigantic old ones, which means the Nephilim, the biblical Nephilim. So here we... We're touching, converging on one onto one strain of tradition, which is primordial, and which is um, unfortunately absolutely covered up in the Bible and related traditions because people don't want this tradition to become known to man. It is very unpleasant because history is connected with it and so on. So um, many ramifications into the modern world as well. But uh, the polar symbolism, as far as I can uh, can say is the basic core secret in Lovecraft. Mm, it's interesting. So we're talking about Yeah, you, it, you're talking about one thing I've theorized when it comes to Lovecraft is that he possibly didn't actually, this is going to sound a bit strange, but he might, and I think you sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier, was that he may not have actually fully understood what was transmitted to him, but he just put it into text kind of thing. And you and that's not a uncommon thing actually. If you look at like historically, people have these experiences and it kind of changes them. Some modern examples would be I mean, like David Icke, for example, the conspiracy theorist, he has this this kind of experience where he said that, you know, information is being transmitted to him and he was just he had the same with Philip K. Dick, with Robert Anton Wilson, Timothy Leary, all these people, they were sort of suddenly receiving information and trying to decode it in the the, way, the best way that they felt or, you know, the most accurate way they felt they could. And um, I wonder if Lovecraft had a similar experience and, you know, was decoding it through fiction. Um, it, it, does that ring? There is, an there, is actually, there is an explanation to that phenomenon mm -hmm. uh, that people, um, uh, it's, I think, uh, Fulconelli wrote about it. 
I think it's just uh, in, I think it's maybe in the mystery of the cathedrals. And he wrote that, um, uh, referring to alchemy, and Lafayette was referring to alchemy as well. I mean, remember the case of Charles Sex the Ward is purely alchemical. So referring to alchemy or um, um, referring to the alchemical allegory, he says, Fulcanelli says that um, this process, which we can also call a magical process, is, I mean, you're not actually starting the process yourself. You are getting, you're logging on to it. You're getting linked to it. You're connecting with it, to it. And that's the mystery. You're connecting to an existing process, ongoing process, and you become part of it. And in the moment you become part of it, you're absolutely stunned. You're fascinated, you're stunned, and you're not, actually you don't know where you are because things are changing. Things are being changed for you, you are changing. That means uh, that the process is doing something with you. You can't do so much about the process itself once it started. You can observe it, you can hardly manipulate it because it's an ongoing thing. And um, sometimes you even feel being falling prey to it because uh, it, it 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 does with you what what it wants. I mean, it's it's not human. It's not uh, it's not uh, for you. It's for a higher purpose, and you have to tune to that higher purpose. You have to stand understand this higher purpose, and the process of understanding the higher purpose of that ongoing process is what makes people creative. What makes people like Edgar Allan Poe, for example, creative, and Lovecraft creative, because there's no other way to get that pressure out of you, that insight, tremendous insight, cosmologically, anything, then put it down on paper, I mean, to write it down, regardless if it's true or not, regardless if it's accurate or not. I mean, you write it down, you become creative. In the long run, uh, you are getting more and more accurate because you're gaining more and more insight. But um, it's a very strange, um, um, it's going along with strange sensations, um, feelings, and all sorts of stuff. And um, and that's, I think, Lafayette was, was was caught up in this process. Edgar Allan Poe, I know, was for sure was caught up in that process because Tiki Lady, the famous words Lafayette mentioned in uh, in, uh, the, um, in at the Mountains of Madness, originally uh, come from uh, Edgar Allan Poe. It's Edgar Allan Poe invention. Tiki Lady, these terrible sounds the the explorers hear in Antarctica. Um, in in the in the city of madness, and um, so Paul was more or less uh, the predecessor. He was became before Lovecraft, and Lovecraft was um, taking a lot of things, a lot of details uh, from Edgar and Poe, and he was caught up in the process as well. Another guy who was caught up in the process, as far as I'm concerned, I think is Jules Verne. Jules Verne was also very close to that stream of tradition, to that primordial tradition, ongoing thing which you can't stop, which is going on in another dimension, which is completely alien, not in an extraterrestrial sense, but alien in a dimensional sense. So um, these three people um, are very uh, interesting to study because of that. And um, I, I plan to write a book on, 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 on all three of them, uh, calling them the draconian prophets, because they are draconian prophets. They are prophets of the draconian uh, tradition. And um, yeah, and there are many, many details in Poe as well, which have never been mentioned so far, or even, I mean, dealt with. I mean, there's no, I know of nothing, no no author has ever um, talked about Edgar Allan Poe and his 
relation to magic or alchemy. And so I wanted to change that and uh, write a book on it, see, see what comes out of it. But uh, this is the, um, um, yeah, this is what I think about uh, this, um, or should I put it, this, um, this process. Um, laughter was caught up and the results are on the table. Great books, you know, great <laughs> yeah. messages. Only we need to decode it. Yeah, yeah, it's excellent. Definitely interesting. I think um, you could you could argue to a degree that Crowley also went through that um, process, but he bought it on manually, as it were, through uh, magical you know the magical process. Like you could argue that all magic is is tapping into that primordial thing that you're talking about. It's uh, you know the the holy guardian angel experience that that seems very similar to what you're That's describing right. there. Yeah, where you're suddenly becoming in contact with some kind of intelligence or creative process that's kind of has a big influence on your life and seems to guide it in a certain way and you could also that's say it. That, it's, guiding. it's a guidance it's a guide it's kind of guidance but uh, mm. it needs to be it needs to be genuine i mean most of i mean for example these people i i got to know in the oto the local oto um they weren't the, the genuine kind of people i mean they were just um trying to um to push their luck by means of drugs and um i think that's the wrong way <clears throat> Um, it can be really dangerous, and I heard of stories um, that really people went mad, you know, while because while while practicing Babylonian magic because it's a very strong kind of magic, and um, so you have to be careful. It's not uh, to tinker with something to play with, and uh, that's I think one reason why Lovecraft always refused to admit that he was into the occult and into magic, because he wanted to stay other people away from it. I think he was aware of the, the, the dangers of it, and, and uh, there are dangers. And um, so, um, but the phenomenon is, I think, with magic, with Crowley, we have the same thing uh, in the case of Crowley. Many alchemists probably, Kenneth Grant, I suppose Kenneth Grant as well to a certain degree, but Crowley was a prominent uh, example, you know, for being locked onto that um, certain kind of stream of consciousness. Sure, sure. I just like to add real quick, you know, it's not a coincidence that the magician card, the Magus card in the Crowley deck, you'll notice actually that the magician is right in front of a vertical pole that extends to the very top to the very bottom of the card. Um, this is the first card in the major arcana number one, literally the number one, the vertical line is a reference to the world axis. It's a polar symbol. Um, even, uh, the letter I is a reference to the polar axis. In my opinion, in the box saga, it said that the lowercase I is literally the world axis with the pole star on top of it. Um, so to me, I think he had some sort of awareness of this. Um, the magician is ruled by Mercury. Mercury goes up and down the world tree or goes up and down this stairway to heaven. That's how he goes between planes of reality. So Mercury uh, being the messenger, uh, the traveler, he goes up and down the world axis uh, between these different dimensions, if you will. And his symbolism is heavily tied to this polar northern sort of um, current that we're talking about. And I'm glad, uh, Wolfgang, that you mentioned uh, the Draconian tradition because that's the heart of the Draconian tradition. This is the heart of the Typhonian tradition. And it goes by many other names as well. And so... Um, you know, different sort of uh, schools of thought relating to the primordial mother, the dark mother, um, you know, is related to all of this stuff very, very heavily. That's right. Exactly. 
Well, you know, uh, as I was prepping for the show, I was going through Polari again and I was looking at certain um, aspects of the book and I'm like, what is the thing that got me the most excited about this? And for me, it was the fact that uh, Wolfgang in Polaria um, is talking about northern polar symbolism overtly. Uh, whereas a lot of other books kind of skirt around it, or I've read uh, Nightside of Eden, I've read other books where it's discussed here and there, but that's not the focus, that's not the core. Here, it, it's more of a focus. So as an example, I was just uh, reviewing it this morning or last night, and he says explicitly that the Caduceus, Hermes Mercury's Caduceus, is a polar world axis symbol. And I'm like, I know that to be true. But most other people have no awareness of that at all. And yet he's explaining it uh, perfectly. And that's the accurate sort of correspondence. Um, the other thing I'll say for me that really hit home is this idea of a pilgrimage, uh, a pilgrimage to the pole. Uh, and so to me, what seems to be the case is that just to kind of lay a little bit of a, a groundwork for people is that there's a number of cultures who place their supreme deity at the north. Uh, that there's a northern correspondence with their supreme deity. Whether they're aware of this or not, all of the symbolism, to me, points in that direction. Um, it's been said that the throne of God exists, you know, in the northern sky. This is another thing that's kind of been said. Um, the other idea here is that uh, a number of groups claim to have an Arctic origin, and they believe in an Arctic return. And so the north has been looked at as the place where humanity came from, some people believe that there was an exodus out of the north for various reasons, uh, perhaps a pole shift or a catastrophe, something along these lines, but that ultimately we come from the north and return to the north. That's my perspective. So every pilgrimage is sort of a northern pilgrimage. Every culture that has a sacred center, a holy of holy, they are mirroring this sacred center northern sort of location that they believe they came from. So Mecca, the Kaaba cube, is a perfect example of this. And they have this black stone on the corner of the cube, right? And what do they do? You go to Mecca and you circumambulate the cube seven times. Ursa Major and Minor each have seven stars. There, there's a huge correspondence with septenary symbolism, the number seven, and the northern sky. And there's a huge correspondence as well with the number eight, which uh, Wolfgang gets into heavily in Polaria, which is brilliant stuff. And so um, there has always been this idea of a central stone. Sometimes it's referred to as a lodestone um, or a black stone. And uh, some people have said that this stone is magnetic, which is why your compasses point north. To me, when I look at a compass and the idea that it points north, uh, I see this as a physical and a metaphysical thing. It's actually kind of, um, it operates on, on in both worlds, I suppose. And so um, this idea of a whitening stone, I'll let Wolfgang talk about that. But I just wanted to kind of point out this pilgrimage sort of concept, the sacred center concept. And then uh, I believe even the the stone on the Kaaba cube was once white and then actually turned black um, at some point. That's the mythology, at least. Um, but this uh, this stone sort of concept, Wolfgang, if you want to talk about that, feel free. The stone concept, well, which is the title of the book Polaria, the white stone, Um Earlier on, I mentioned that uh, stream, that stream of consciousness you can you can uh, log on to and um, um, use uh, for certain purposes. We know that there are two ways, two traditions, the left-hand path and the right-hand path. 
So there must be a difference between the two. And in most texts, for example, I read, I know of, uh, these two these two things are mixed up. I mean, nobody really tells you what the left-hand path is, what's it, what its really real purpose is. Um, same with the left-hand path, uh, right, right, right-hand path. Now, um, imagine the axis, imagine the world axis, and um, which is which adds stability to a system. It's a central pillar of the Sephirotic system, and uh, it adds um, stability to a system, a given system. Now, the Earth is a given system. You have Earth magnetism, you have two poles, and you have the two poles connected, interconnected, by an axis in the middle. Now, um, what to do with the axis? I mean, your axis, you've got an axis in your body as well. It's the axis between the lower or the lowest uh, chakra, the Muradhara chakra, the earth chakra, and your top chakra, your crown chakra. Uh, in the normal state, um, these chakras are more or less um, aligned. Um, it could happen, and I think Kenneth Grant refers to that in one of his books, um, that by, as he said, by accident or by a flaw in a ceremonial ritual, it can happen that this axis um, becomes tilted. You know, that all of a sudden, there's a very small, slight tilt in the whole system, which brings the whole system out of original stability. Now, is the original stability we're living with the primordial stability? I mean, this is the basic question, um, because most people think that the world we're living in is a perfect world. The world, uh, as, as things are, or the elements are aligned to each other, is a perfect system. It works perfectly. And um, alchemy suggests that there is a process which uh, uses this system, present system of stability, in order to create something else, something which is not originally, um, you know, in alchemy, there are two stones, a white stone and a red stone. And um, if you want um, the state of harmony, the state of stability, like, for example, in the Egyptian crown, depicted in the Egyptian crown, the typical Egyptian crown on, on, on the head of Horus, is a crown uh, which is red and white. So both, which are, by the way, the colors of Christ, which are red and white. So this indicates the harmony, harmony of the system. But uh, the problem is, if you want to, um, if you want to, um, <clears throat> how I put it, to um, damage the harmony for a certain purpose, to leave the matrix, because uh, um, system, you have to find a way out of the system if you want to go out of the system. So if you want to reach the other side, if you want to uh, make contact with the other side, like in, like in Lovecraft, for example, people do, or the uh, protagonists usually do, are doing something very bizarre to get out of the system, um, you have to um, create a stone um, which is not the stone which is white and red. You have to create a stone which is red, because red is the color of judgment. White is the color of mercy. And in, in the origin, in the stone, in the horror stone, the, the stone of the equilibrium, mercy and judgment combined in one in one horrors. 
But as you know, Horus is um, the enemy of Zut, Zet, Thes, or Satan. So um, the, the system installed here on this planet or in this universe is the Horian system, which is the reason why the um, the um, most, um, for example, Shola Lubitz, uh, a very famous French author, wrote that the uh, the ruling brotherhood on Earth, esoteric brotherhood, is a Horian brotherhood. It is perpetrating the Horian world. The Horian world is a status status quo. It is as it is now, and it wants to stay what it is. So if you want to change it, you have to work with the elements concerned. And this is the stone. The stone is the actual center part of the system. It's found in the center. It's found in your center. So from there, you have to go. It's a stepping stone. It's, it's, it's a step, really, in, in literal sense, it's a stepping stone. You have to step from there. And that's what Mary said. It's like Jacob's ladder. It's a ladder going up to the north. Now, in Hebrew tradition, for example, that's the reason why the north, the cosmic north or the metaphysical north, is always pictured evil. It's always evil because evil comes in from the north in Kabbalah. The temple is Jerusalem is open on the northern side, and that's the gateway where evil comes in. So you have to close it. In Hebrew Kabbalah, it is said you have to close your north. In uh, the polar original polar tradition, it is said you have to open up yourself to the north. You have to step out of the system, the matrix, to find uh, the way out. And this is by reversing the poles, because um, uh, reversing the whole system. South has to be uh, has to become north, and north has to become south, as the Egyptians knew to tell. And this is uh, where the system collapses. And this temporal collapse is the price to be paid. Lovecraft wrote in Through the Gates of the Silver Key that there is a terrible price to be paid for those who want to get out, who want to get out of the system who want to take him as a guide out of the universe. And um, it's true, and it's not um, also to be taken lightly. It's not a decision to be taken lightly. And many people um, getting touched with it, touched with it um, unwillingly are surprised. I mean, they just hit it for some reason. They, they, they touch it uh, without uh, having, having the intention to. So um, the um, reversal of the system is always a token, a sign that um, something is coming in and getting out, like swapping the hour clock, turning it around. You know, the sand is, you know, dropping to the piece of the, the, the sand is uh, uh, streaming from one side to the other. And again, if you turn northern symbolism is, that's why all the symbolism is very ambivalent because sometimes it's good, sometimes it's evil. Because most traditions, like the, um, um, the Hebrew tradition, picture it evil. Other traditions, for example, the Hindu traditions, picture it good. The Arctic homeworld, the Arctic paradise. In, in Hinduism, the, the, the homeworld, the original homeworld is in the Arctic area. I mean, terrestrially speaking and metaphysically speaking. So uh, it always depends uh, on the focus of your tradition. And um, the, basic, um, the basic work is to understand the system. If you understand the system, you can work with the elements of the system. And you have to be aware of the fact that you have to change the elements. You can't work with the elements as they are right now. Impossible. And that applies to the chakras, that applies to the axis as well. And it applies to um, being aware of uh, the meaning of the poles, south and north, in your body, in your own body, you know? The whole thing, and you're an image of Earth. 
you're an earth, a small earth in itself. You have an you have a body which has a magnetic which is linked to the magnetic field, earth magnetic field. You're a small image of the big one. So uh, it's the same principles, basically, and um, that's why alchemy is so ambivalent. And my book, for example, put the focus on the white stone explicitly, more or less explicitly. I didn't. I think I didn't write much on on, on the redstone at that time. But uh, thirty years have elapsed since then, and um, now I am able to uh, talk about the redstone as well. This uh, as above. Sorry, I was just going to say um, this as above, so below relationship is really important to kind of understand with northern polar symbolism. Um, we have a spine. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the world axis, there's so many symbols for the world axis, right? And uh, believe it or not, many, many symbols that look very phallic in nature are world axis symbols. When you really decode their sort of primordial essence. So the sword, the post, uh, I think of post office, and that relates to Mercury as well. And I was mentioning that pole behind uh, the magician and the magician card. Um, the standing stone the obelisk. These are all polar symbols, in my opinion, right? But our spine, which is actually an anagram for penis, by the way, and also has that word pine right there. So there's a world tree sort of reference, in my opinion. Pines are some of the oldest trees on earth. Um, it's a world axis symbol. And um, Wolfgang has some beautiful stuff to say about our heart actually being symbolic of this center as well, this sacred sort of center within our body. And so when you decode symbolism, every symbol has a center, both uh, sort of literally, but also metaphorically, right? So a lot of Eastern philosophies talk about the still point within, you know, um, if you're looking at a mandala, you have to acknowledge the central point of the mandala. There's lots of meditative symbols that the center portion of the symbol is the most important part because it is the axis that everything revolves around. Uh, Wolfgang, I'm glad you brought up the fact that the world axis is related to stability. So when royal people or people of authority, when they are carrying a wand, which is also another world axis symbol, or a scepter, scepter relates to septenary, which relates to the number seven, which to me I identify as a, a northern sort of um, number because of Ursa Major and Minor. Um, what they're really holding is a symbol of power. The rod is another example. They're holding a symbol of power. They're holding a symbol of authority. Uh, the world axis relates back to the law as well. And basically, it is related to structure. So what I've decoded, I did a presentation called Decoding Chaos, there's this idea that the primordial uh, universe had all of the elements, um, but everything was kind of in this uh, heap, if you will. It was an amalgamation. It was a mixture of all of the different elements. Everything was kind of fused together. Very, very chaotic. But it wasn't until the world axis came about did the elements get separated. The world axis is symbolic of the separation of heaven and earth, but also the connection between heaven and earth as well. Um, you can see this all day in the magician card. That's what why he's doing the as above, so below kind of posture, um, because he's saying that I both connect what's above and below, but I also separate what's above and below, just like the world axis, which has been likened to a ladder, uh, a tree, you know, a tower, all of these different sorts of things. Um, but regarding the central stone real quick, you know, to me, it seems as though this is the primordial sort of uh, spiritual 
backbone of everything is having this central location that you can call your own, that you can defend. And so um, there's this great book by this guy named John Michel. It's called At the Center of the World. And he goes through all of these different tribal traditions where these people would have a central tree. That was their world tree. This is where they buried the ashes of their family members. This is what they put in um, sort of the highest sort of tier in their spiritual sort of uh, framework. And so if that tree was destroyed or lost or what have you, they were a lost people because that tree symbolically, just like the world axis, it brought structure, it brought stability, it brought order, it gave them something to revolve around. And so for a very, very, very long time, uh, different indigenous groups and native peoples, they would have this central hearth, this central fire, this central stone. Sometimes it would be a mound. But uh, this is all northern polar symbolism, in my opinion. And uh, really, it uh, it mirrors the dynamic of this northern sort of concept, this point of origin and return. I think this is what a, uh, a lot of Atlantean symbolism is about. There's so many claims about where Atlantis is, right? Um, there's a lot of researchers that will find these different temples or things like that, and they'll say, oh, Atlantis was here, Atlantis was there. Um the idea of like Plato's Atlantis, this concentric ring sort of concept uh, is northern symbolism. My understanding is there were a lot of groups way back when, when people were more under the uh, sort of stellar polar umbrella of things where they would have this central location and they would have a ring land system that uh, would kind of uh, uh, fan out from there. So you lived in a concentric ringed reality. And that center was the Holy of Holies. Sometimes there would be a temple there, things along uh, that nature. You know, we have the idea of a city center, right? And things kind of expand out from the city center. Um, it's not uncommon to have, uh, you know, a city with polis at the end, metropolis, as an example, you know, um, a large city. That polis is a reference to the pole, P-O-L-I-S, right? So the pole has been uh, this sort of symbol that it can very easily get overlooked and, and you don't understand its implications, but it is absolutely everywhere once you have the eyes to see it and once you've researched it a bit. There's a lot of polar symbolism well, out in the world. Go ahead. Yeah, great. Uh, the, the, the mystery of alchemy and the mystery of magic is uh, creating a metaphysical structure. And this is what you're, what you're referring to. I mean, you're referring to a metaphysical structure which is uh, a mirror image or an image of um, the structure of Earth. I mean, the, you have two poles and you have an axis interconnecting uh, both poles. So uh, one, um, there's one episode in the Bible which is really interesting um, because it's, uh, it's, it's talking about the, actually about this, about this process, the process you're just talking about, and it's about this uh, quarrel at Pharaoh's court um, between Moses and, uh, yeah, Moses and Pharaoh. And it's about the rot, Aaron's rot, and, be, and about the rot that becomes a serpent or the serpent that becomes a rot. And this is um, actually the translation of the, the work of the alchemist or the magician because it is said that the stone is formed out of the waters of the soul. You have to take your soul, you have to take the elements of the soul, which is water, soul is water, and related to the moon. And you have to um, form out of this water, this soul water, a hardened substance. You have to harden the substance. And you have, to, in other words, out of the serpent, which is a symbol of life, and related to water, 
we have to create a rod, a stability, because the serpent has to become stable. Water has to become hardened. It has to harden somehow. And this is a lithic structure, like a stone. Uh, it, it, it's um, compared to a stone. So a mineral, a mineral, actually. So once you have the rod, you can ascend. And you have the, the basic part, which is found in the sphere and it's relating to the letter P, for example, as well, 3.14, which is very, very uh, important in Kabbalah because the name Shaddai, the holy name Shaddai, is the same or less the same numerical value as uh, the letter P, 3.14. So uh, P is the mathematical or the, yeah, the mathematical rendering of the metaphysical process. It's just a translation of it. And um, so P is very important. It's your axis. You're related to P. And um, this structure is metaphysical. So, uh, so you have to, the, the work of alchemy is building a metaphysical structure from the stone. And the stone is the basic, uh, the, 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 the main part, actually, the main part, because it's your, it's your foundation. That's why it's called the foundation stone in religion. You know, the church is built on the foundation stone. And this is the, the basic foundation stone. Um, so the rod is important because the rod is the phallic symbol. And uh, that's why you can ascend to the heavens, to the north. So we have the polar tradition, um, essentially polar. It's essentially polar, you know. it's uh, It can't be more essential. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna uh, go my, ahead if you wanted to say something. I was going to say, I'll put, put in my uh, conspiracy theory hats on for a second. Um, there's two points I've, I've thought of. I think one of you mentioned earlier about this kind of con concealing of this tradition. Um, could, when you think of like the way the North is kind of portrayed in the media, it's it, it, I'm thinking specifically of things like Game of Thrones, where the North is in a snowy icy wasteland and there's a big wall separating it from the, the normal you know people and these kind of evil kind of primordial forces in the north do you do you think that there's some kind of link between uh, there's some kind of effort to suppress um this kind of more primordial yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely ever since yeah. ever ever since, ever since interesting and um, ever since there's ever, ever since there's anybody ever since i mean it's uh, in 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 kabbalah for example is forbidden you know, forbidden to climb mount saffron which is the north the northern point it reaches the midnight sun the area of the midnight sun and with the midnight sun the black sun because the black sun is the actual sun of transformation and it's the it's a transformed sun. It's the original metaphysical sun, not the, the physical sun. So it's your internal sun. I mean, it's just about creating a personal sun, a personal light in yourself, which is your light of complete consciousness. And it is forbidden. I'll tell you quite categorically. It is forbidden to create. It's forbidden for man to create complete consciousness because once you have created complete consciousness you're out of the system you're out of anything you're free 
And do you think that and there are certain forces? Do you think Lovecraft? Because yeah. Lovecraft, um, in his books, whenever someone kind of encounters an old one or some kind of you know um, creature linked to an old one, they 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 go insane. You know, I've seen the face of God and it is terrible. That kind of thing. It's. Um, uh, do you think that that is a kind of weird freedom in its own sense? Do you think insanity is the realization of the whole kind of thing? Is it like a, is that what Lovecraft is trying to say? Do you feel? Uh, to be honest with you, I think insanity, like uh, madness, for example, mountains of madness or insanity, is just a term um, for alluding to uh, the fact that um, things are completely changed. I mean, uh, completely changed. Uh, Crowley wrote, uh, magic is energy tending to change. And most people don't want to change because any change, any change, outward, inward change is, is, is regarded like, you know, I don't want to have to do something with it. So that's why... Insanity is something like madness. Um, I, 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 I said to um, Mario the other day that uh, the mad Arab, that's the author of the Necronomicon, the fabled author of the Necronomicon, he is uh, said to be mad because he is out of his stability. He's out of line with the axis. He's disattuned mm. in a sense. And he's becoming mad because he's seeing something which is beyond the system. And uh, to be honest, you have to be mad in this metaphysical sense to be able to see to see what's beyond the matrix or what's actually the, the origins. Uh, um, and that's why they use the word, you can use the word in sense, whatever. Uh, rendering of a metaphysical state which can't be, which can't be described, which can, could be described differently. But I mean, it's it's a good way to describe it because you're out of your you're out of your system, you're out of your mind, you're you're absolutely stunned, you're fascinated, you're speechless, or you're gone for the world, more or less. And that's what uh, um, that's why the message is mad, you know. I mean, that would happen as well if you're talking about um, kind of the poles suddenly twisting round or something like that. That would also symbolically be a, a form of. A form of kind of madness in itself wouldn't it i mean the way you'd interpret that would be you know you wouldn't know how to interpret that because it's everything's back to front you know that kind of thing it's it's kind of what you hear when people take um certain drugs like uh psychedelic drugs that they you often hear that description of it's like the the, the poles being like twisted around like people that take um dmt often talk about that like this reality flipping you always hear that kind of expression flip things flipping round like i often wonder if that's a kind of allegory for something a bit more metaphysical or spiritual right yeah an inversion yeah. and um okay i was just going to say uh real quick regarding this uh northern polar suppression to me, it's no surprise after doing all this research that the swastika is as um you know kind of um, notorious and as frowned upon as it as it currently is in the West, you know, because to me, the swastika, what it comes down to is you're seeing Ursa Major go around the pole star uh, once a season, essentially. So even Ursa Major literally looks like the number seven. So I'm inclined to think personally that the number seven, the shape of the number seven is a direct reference to the Big Dipper. Right. And so the swastika is a symbol of this. And so it's a symbol of this around the world. Uh, my understanding is that 90% of Earth's population has a view of the circumpolar constellations. Those That's Ursa Major and Minor revolving around the pole star. Right. And so um, 
you can't see the circumpolar constellations from everywhere in the world, but uh, 90% of the world's population is just north enough to be able to see it. And so there are different uh, cultures around the world that literally have a pole star deity or have a, um, a, a Big Dipper deity, basically. There are um, a number of traditions that say that they're sages. Uh, the Apkalu is one of them. The Rishis are another. Seven sages that come from the north and bestow wisdom upon humanity. Um, so in India, there's a pole star deity named Durva. Uh, in Japan, there's a pole star deity named Myokin. I think there's more actually, but like I said earlier, I think a lot of these deities have become solarized over time. Um, but it was really amazing to me to be in India and to see uh, these different really small taxi rickshaw sort of uh, cars have a red swastika on it with gigantic red letters that say Aryan. And I'm like, this is amazing, you know? And so to me, the word Aryan is a reference to this Arctic homeland. And the swastika is an Arctic Northern polar symbol. And it's one of the most beautiful symbols in existence, in my personal opinion. Um, and so to me, there's been a suppression to kind of twist and invert the symbolism to make it seem like a bad thing. In my opinion, Northern polar symbolism gets to the core of everything and it's really holistic and it brings you back to self. It's actually self-empowering. It brings you back to your true essence, to your true North. You know, it speaks to your divinity and your connection with the cosmos and everything else. To me, a lot of the solar worship, the solarization of everything, it actually is disempowering. It, it it takes power away from you. You know, you're looking outside of yourself. You want external solutions. You want external validation, things like that. The polar tradition, it's actually, uh, the more you tap into it, it really brings you to that still point within that so many different, uh, you know, spiritual um, schools of thought have talked about. I can give you a good example of, um, I can give you a good, good example of this, this uh, polar cover-up. It's a cover-up, actually. And it's been ongoing for, for many, many thousands of years. Uh, one very, very prominent example is the Ark of Noah, or Noah's Ark. Because uh, it is very obvious that the word, I mean, the word Ark is clear. It's like, like, like a box or a, or a crate or whatever, just a kind of container. But what is Noah originally? It was solarized. The original word was solarized. Noah is behind the word Noah. The, the Hebrew word Noah is the, the early Semitic Nu or No. Crowley used the word Nut. Egyptian equivalent is Nut. And Nut is the night. It's night. It's female. The Nu are, for example, uh, linguistically speaking, the Ah, Ach, Nuach, the sound of the Ach is an Ak, which is a genitive case behind nu it literally means of nu of the night it is actually the arc of the of the night is not male it's female because the arc of the night is the moon noah's arc is a rabbinical code for the moon and all these episodes linked to noah's arc are basically referring to the moon and the mystery of the moon so this is a very prominent example. And we have lots of examples in the Bible, for example, where, where, the, uh, where the feminine became masculine, you know, mostly, mostly 
that way around, feminine becoming masculine. Hardly the other way around, I mean, mostly. Because the north, the northern light is called mother night or midnight. The midnight sun is the mother night sun, the maternal sun. And the maternal sun is female. So the way leads up to the female, not to the male. And this is absolutely, this was, I mean, this was turned upside down by covering, by covering up, it, the whole was turned upside down because it was solarized. And by solarizing it, you know, everything became male. And the female aspect of creation, like the creatrix, um, became subdued. It's, it's hardly visible anymore. I mean, you know, in the Christian tradition, for example, Maria is, is, is a very tabooed uh, subject, you know. It's, it's uh, related to more or less the underground tradition in France, for example. So um, that hints at um, conscious cover-up, deliberate cover-up. And this cover-up is uh, even penetrating media, of course. I mean, uh, lots of movies out there where the North is always evil. My, for example, another example, have you ever seen, have you ever watched a movie, these famous mummy movies of the 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, American movies, cheap B-movies. Have you ever seen one of these mummy movies where the mummy is good? The mummy is always the evil because mm. the Egyptians... means north. So the whole episode, uh, the whole story, uh, the, the quarrel and the fight and, and, and even the, the exodus of the, of the Israelites from Egypt is all about the change of north and south. Right, right. Uh, one of the things that I picked up from Wolfgang um, in Polaria, and then he since recommended a book that got into it a little bit more that I'm currently reading, is this idea of the mystical East or um, the even the word Oriental basically being a reference to orientation. And if you're going to get oriented, if you're going to have correct orientation here um, in this plane, it's good to know where North is. And so the North Star is the preeminent star for sea navigation. And even if you were looking at other constellations to understand where you were at in the open sea, you have to know where those stars are located in relation to the north, right? So generally these fixed stars, um, that, that is what you're looking towards to get the right orientation uh, or where are you headed? Are you headed east, west, north, south, right? So oriental uh, is a reference to orientation and this quest for the Orient, I've learned through Wolfgang, is actually amazingly a reference to the mystic north or the cosmic north. And so people who are um, on a quest for the mystical Orient, it's not physically east. It's actually north. So there's been a number of inversions um, using other directions as coded uh, ways of referencing the north. I'm also inclined to think that this idea of manifest destiny, going west, settling the west, you know, um, is actually what they did was they borrowed northern symbolism for that campaign to go westward. So uh, I've seen examples of the west being an encoded northern reference, the east for sure being an encoded northern reference, which is why in these Freemasonic tracing boards that I've been looking at lately and have been studying for years, actually, 
the pillar of transcendence, that middle pillar that goes to the underworld or to the heavens in the north is uh, indicated with an E, meaning east, meaning uh, the cosmic north, not literal, actual east. Um, so you can see that why there's um, some, some confusion there. For a long time, that kind of eluded me. Why would this be pointed east? But thanks to Wolfgang, now I know it's actually pretty clear, you know, that this is the case. So the South also being a symbolic reference to the North too. So when it comes to directional symbolism, I've seen instances where all of the directions in, in some traditions have been used as a veiled reference to the North, actually, as strange as that might sound. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you noticed, um, this is kind of on topic still, I guess, but th there's a lot of linkage between we're, we're talking about the east it's just suddenly made this pop into my head uh, there's a linkage between lovecraft and and pre-islamic folklore uh, as in like pre-islamic myth in the middle east um and i've noticed in recent years there's been a real boom in that information coming out i, I don't know if you there's a youtube channel called mysterious middle east that covers uh, a lot of this kind of this kind of folklore um, I'm wondering if have you um, looked into this, and do you think that there might be a kind of Lovecraft connection with that? Oh, <laughs> didn't even notice he was gone this time. There we go. Oh, <laughs> that was strange. We had uh, we we had two. Oh, hang on. I've got multiple. Yeah. I've got multiple Wolfgangs joining at the same time. Here we go. It's well, this is weird. This has never happened before. Hang on a minute. My phone. The thing here keeps ringing. Uh, that's that's really strange. Okay, if I get rid of that one. There we go. Um, every time I... <laughs> sorry, I've got a thing ringing here. Every time um, you come in, it rings like a phone. But it just keeps ringing. So, oh, there we go. It's gone now. There we go. Good. Um, my, it was my internet again. I, I see. It seems to be I'm on the evil side, you know. I'm <laughs> always interrupted. I was, uh... it's, the, uh, it's the solar forces. They're trying to... Uh... <laughs> That's it... one of the disadvantages of being polar, you know, just getting disrupted <laughs> yeah the it's, it's interesting i've been reading a lot about solar stuff recently um i've been reading a lot about the solar temple in switzerland and um the solar lodge as well which is a spin-off from the oto and it seems like like anything that uses the term solar goes horribly wrong <laughs> for some reason like the solar lodge in um the oto spin-off lodge it was just this insane really bad warped version of the ato and then you have the obviously the solar temple ended in mass death it's uh yeah oh i think we might have lost him again oh no um, uh, that's a try because the the east is said normally it said uh, ex oriente lux means uh, the light um for being the, the literal i mean the, the geographical east um if you if you if you put it correctly, it means the north, and that's why the northern it, in, in in Sufism in Islamic Sufism they speak about they say they they, they know the the so called Insan al Kamil, which is the man of the north, and the man of the north is the man of light, and this is the principle and the mystic principle, which is a guiding principle in Islam, for example, mystical Islam is the man of light, and the man of light is always is always related to the north, always. So these these two uh, uh, directions, east and north, they are. I mean, it's confused. It's being confused. It's most of the time confused, but they refer to the same thing, metaphysically speaking. You know. 
before you got uh, disconnected earlier, <clears throat> I asked the question about, have you noticed that there, um, recently there's been a, um, a real boom in information, as it were, about pre-Islamic uh, Middle Eastern um, kind of mythology that seems to really echo the work of Lovecraft a lot of the time. If you look at the way Lovecraft it, uses these kind of myths. Interesting. No, no, no. no I haven't oh, okay. noticed anything. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, okay. That's, don't worry about that, because I, I was wondering if you'd, if you'd seen any of these, because what's really fascinating about them <clears throat> is you, you, you read through these myths, like uh, these encounters with... Um, there's things like uh, the Seven Towers of Satan, um, these kind of Nephilim type characters that keep appearing. You've got, um, oh, God, there's there's so many, and there's there's a fantastic. Uh, there's a guy that's in what they call the Mina, which is the Middle East North uh, North Africa area. Um, he he keeps his identity secret, but he runs a YouTube channel called the Mysterious Middle East. And every time I watch that channel, I think, oh, wow, this is Lovecraft. This is basically Lovecraft. And I I wonder if there's like somehow Lovecraft was tapping into this kind of mythology, this ancient mythology, like you were talking about, and we're actually seeing some of it kind of come into life or, or the kind of the, the non, non the non-fiction version kind of coming, you know, into into our consciousness now. And I've, I, I don't know, it's kind of a interesting thing to look yeah. at, maybe. Yeah, the non-fiction, the factual version. I mean, uh, I, I said to, um, talking to Maria the other day, we talked about uh, Islam, and uh, Islam is basically polar, you know. And it's it's very interesting. There's one very interesting thing that uh, needs to be stressed in this context because um, Islam is uh, mostly misunderstood, even by Muslims. I mean, they don't even understand the polar meaning of the Kaaba, for example, of Mecca. And um, as you might know, there are two uh, words of creation. Um, one is biblical and one is Quranic. And uh, the biblical one is uh, very famous in Kabbalah. It's called Berbereshit, which means in the beginning. That's a literal translation of it. Um, the rabbinical translation of these of these um, of these uh, two words, Bereshit, um, is he created six. By six, usually they say uh, the six directions. Six directions of space. That means <clears throat> the word Bereshit, the word of creation, the beginning of the Bible, begins with the creation of the universe. Now, in the Quran, there is a different word of creation, which is part of the uh, Islamic um, formula, Bismillah. It's called Bismillah. And both words, it's said in Islam, uh, begin with a B, the letter B, the second letter, the letter B. Letter B in both um, Quranic um, symbolism and um, Kabbalistic symbolism means connection of two worlds. The second letter means connection of two worlds. It means uh, the beginning of the Bible is the connection of two worlds. It begins with seven, with six uh, directions. Now, what does the word Bismillah mean? It is different. It's a different word of creation. The reason is... It is a different purpose. It's got a different purpose. The, the word Bismillah means in the name of Allah. And the word Allah is a mystery in itself. There are a lot of stu studies out on, on the word Allah. And even, 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 even that concerning the word Allah, many Muslims don't know the way around. 
They just think it means God, simply God, like, like Yahweh or something, which is wrong. The Hebrew word, God word, Hashem, is a formula. It means name, the name. So what does Allah mean? It's a formula as well. And that's what I wrote about in my latest book, Necro Yoga. Allah is a, a negation of a letter. Because um, the word la, or low in Hebrew, means no or not. It's a negation. So what does Allah mean? Allah means the negation of al, of al, of one letter, the lamet, or the lam, the Arabic lam, which is the letter of connecting things, of energy transmission, and of knowledge. So... There are two meanings. Bereshit, I got in, in a sense, created six, and Bismillah in the name of Allah. Uh, the Islamic formula of creation is a negation of creation. That means it is um, a, um, a call to reach back, to go back to the origins, as uh, it is commonly understood in Islam, in Islamic mysticism. And that direction, and the direction Referring to that going back to that return to the origins is the north. So it means the, we can say that Bismillah is the call to return to the north, the cosmic north. That means by negating, by negation of the L, the actual creation, the material creation and the world structure as such, the matrix in modern terms, call it matrix. So we have two different formula uh, in two different religions. It's wrong to say, absolutely wrong to say that both, as, as you often hear, that both religions share one origin. They do historically, Abrahamic religions, but that doesn't mean anything. They've got two diverging purposes, two diverging purposes. And uh, this is, um, yeah, this is, this is uh, put forward in the, uh, in the creation word of Bismillah, like in the creation word uh, Bereshit in the Bible. So this is again polar. We have two sides, you know, two sides, two poles, you know, fighting for supremacy in a sense. Islam seems to be one of those religions that kind of um, it has. Uh, I'll be careful how I word this because I don't want to get in trouble. But there was a study recent. Well, uh, an archaeologist recently um, looked at um, mosques. Pre at the, let me. I need to say this in the right way. I kind of want to get in trouble, um, right? So there was a a dynastic shift. Yeah, there was a dynastic shift in Islam. Um, but so basically, what what happened? I used to live in Saudi Arabia, so we used to learn a lot about um, the kind of Islamic history. Um, and so there was basically what would happen a lot um, before Islam sort of stabilized was the different dynastic um, armies would take over. Uh, you know, ruling certain sort of key religious areas like Saudi Arabia, Mecca, this kind of thing. Um, and there was a theory going around for a long time that the lo current location of Mecca was incorrect, that it'd be moved by one of these dynasties. And so an archaeologist, I can't remember his name for life of me, but he's, fan he's a really fascinating uh, character. He basically um, identified all of the mosques in the world um, that were established pre this dynasty that he believed um, or that a lot of people believe uh, had moved the position of Mecca. And the way 
he sort of tried to prove this theory was there's a wall in every mosque where that's set up specifically to face Mecca, the, the location of this of the stone, essentially. Um, so that his his theory was, well, the way to test if it had been moved would be to basically draw a line from the walls of these uh, these mosques that were pre this dynasty and see where they point. Because, you know, these if they always point towards where the stone is, they should all point to the same direction. All of the mosques after this dynasty point to Mecca, what we consider Mecca to be now. But all the mosques prior to this dynasty point to Petra. And it's this fascinating thing. Like when you look at Islam and key religions like you know Christianity, there's all this kind of manipulation going on all the time. And you, you really start to think, well, why is why is all why are all these these keystone things within these religions being manipulated all the time? And why are we being kind of led left and right, you know, <laughs> around certain things? And I wonder if one of you know that that's just one example to manipulate our understanding of things that's the only reason why yeah and, is... and that means um, for certain brotherhoods which i call the solar brotherhoods the white brotherhood uh to establish their power and remain in power mm -hmm. that's what they are and want to say i know uh, we had uh, alan greenfield on recently he's just written a book called the black lodge uh looking at the real this idea of the black lodge a real black lodge uh, rather than the you know the kind of fictional twin peaks black lodge uh, um and he says the same thing that the, the kind of one of the goals of of the Black Lodge is to kind of constantly manipulate perceptions of things, and you know, kind of like steer, like knock us off the course all the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting, you know, and it, it, the more you look into that, the more real it seems to get each time. And it kind of, and you start to look at kind of more, um, I guess, mainstream conspiracy theories, and they don't necessarily seem as wild as they would, as they do when you look at it through that lens as, especially you think oh hang on some of these do actually line up with what people like greenfield are saying more occult people are saying and more um i guess spiritual kind of conspiracies are saying it's kind of there's this interesting yeah it's kind of it's an interest we're living in highly occult times i mean these days are really like uh, fraught with occult um not, not necessarily symbolism, but um, uh, occult actions. I mean, it's very occult. I mean, um, so we have, um, and in my view, it started, all, it's all started with, uh, in recent history, it all started around 2016, 2017, um, when news came out that the Nephilim had returned to Antarctica, which in a sense is very strange because uh, nobody said that, uh, nobody said in the Bible that they, that they disappeared. Um, so... How come that they return? Because they can turn only if they if they weren't there. So um, I think they were always there. I would rather say it's an awakening. I would rather uh, uh, use the term awakening or reawakening of forces that, um, as Lovecraft wrote, are trying to rule the world again. And we have a ruling brotherhood. We have a ruling elite in every country which is anonymous, more or less anonymous. I mean, um, um, don't think that the people we see in the media belong to the actual elite. The actual elite is anonymous, invisible, so we can't see them because they're socially invisible. They act through other people on the occult levels. Um, so um, there are two brotherhoods uh, at, at war at the moment, and uh, they fight for supremacy, and it's a polar process that's going on. Because it started in Antarctica, it started in the south, and it's heading towards the, the north, because the northern part is now um, in distress.
Mm-hmm. And what's I interesting mean, is um, so that one of the, a lot of the comments we got when we had Alan Greenfield on um, the show was that he that people were saying, "Oh, you're just talking, you just re re uh, branded conspiracy theory. Essentially, you're talking about a black lodge instead of an Illuminati, or you know uh, this sort of thing." It, it's possible using that logic then that this kind of you know the kind of um goonification or whatever you want to call it of 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 conspiracy theory you know if if you're a conspiracy theorist these days you're it, it we talk about this all the time on the show it used to be a kind of subculture conspiracy theory back up until about around 9-11 and then it became this bigger thing that it is now but it also yeah. got stigmatized at that point as well and so now if you're a conspiracy theorist you get tagged as right wing you get um, tagged as you know as as the bad guy essentially whereas it, it but all this other research is coming in that seems to be validating a lot of it or not necessarily validating a lot of it but saying a very similar thing that there's this hidden hand behind everything that it could be you know it could be human it could be it could be you know a, a spiritual thing that's kind of um, controlling but it is interesting you know when we're talking about suppression that that that's coming up as well recently <laughs> Right, right. Uh, regarding the switch of uh, the the Kaba Q, by the way, uh, Petra, Petra, uh, meaning stone, that to me makes a lot of sense. And kind of what you're referencing to this shift or whatever, um, the cultural sacred center, spiritual core of a religion. Um, to me, that's the shift we're talking about between polar to solar. That That's the major shift. So right now, everyone's head is focused on the sun. And when you look at a lot of modern symbolism books, everything is solar based. And um, I've heard a lot of things from other people where they literally think everything in symbolism is just a reference to the sun. But what they don't realize is this is a newer God. We're talking about an older God when we're talking about Northern polar symbolism, the same way. If you look into set as in the tunnels of set, uh, it's been said that set hides behind Ursa major um, or set is um, perhaps the eighth child of this seven star system in the North. And so set would be considered this older classification of deity associated with chaos, with this creatrix and everything else. And so when you were referring to, um, Islamic or pre-Islamic mythology and everything else, we're talking about an older classification of deity. Um, And so, yes, Lovecraft was tapping into the same idea and he was associating it with the North appropriately. So that's the symbolism that the older tier of gods are more so related to this uh, portion in, in, uh, in the heavens. Uh, What I'd like to add to, to what Mario said, uh, that's right. It's absolutely right. Because uh, Seth, or Zud or Satan, actually, that's the word from Satan, Satan comes from the Egyptian, um, which means son of earth, the earthborn son, um, is polar, whereas Horus, his younger uh, brother, is solar. And that's why uh, uh, Horus is. And here we have a link to Lovecraft, to Lovecraft's elder ones. The elder one is Horus. So Lovecraft wrote, explicitly wrote that the old ones are sometimes checked by the magic of the elder ones. And the elder ones are the Horian Brotherhood. That means the Horian Brotherhood is the brother, the solar, the white brotherhood, is has certain has a certain power and certain influence on the magic of the old ones as well. So that's why the whole the conflict is is it could be, I mean, it the outcome of the conflict is is open because um who knows what 
magic, the old one's magic is supreme. Sometimes the other one's magic is supreme. And that's exactly what Lovecraft wrote in many of his stories, because he wasn't so sure um, who's going to win. But at the moment, we've got that fight between Horus and Seth, between the Polar and the Solar Brotherhoods. And um, that's that's what uh, running um, the world, or the history is what making history at the moment. It's a history-making conflict ever since, in a sense. Sure, sure. And you'll notice, too, uh, on the Sun card in the Major Arcana, there's always a child there, which I think is very appropriate. You know, And we refer to the Sun uh, phonetically the same as a, a boy, a young boy, a son, S-O-N and S-U-N, because this is a younger... Uh, God, in my opinion, that's kind of what's being said, you know, uh, versus the star card, which is related to the stellar tradition, polar tradition. In fact, I think it's really interesting. Um, sort of my decode is that the star card in the tarot, people question what star it is. But I'll tell you right now, it's actually the pole star. In my opinion, some people have said it's serious or it's, you know, some of these other stars. Um, I can see the case for that, but I really see it as the pole star relating to this earlier tradition. And you see a woman at night preparing a ritual bath. She's almost returning to the waters from which she came, from which she actually embodies, you know. So here you have this deeply feminine um, sort of symbol uh, with this figure at night relating her to the darkness to chaos to this primordial sort of nature and then you have the moon card we know that that's our local moon and then you have the sun card uh you know with that child there and so to me very very symbolic these three cards i think it's really referencing uh these three traditions the star card by the way comes just after the tower card which is a polar symbol you know in and of itself so i think there's kind of uh, some overlapping themes going on there um and this card too it's not That's uncommon for this card. Well. what was that it's a phallic symbol tower it's a phallic symbol because the phallus is a symbol of the exactly. of the world axis but as in the card the tower, tower got struck by lightning and that's a mystery that's a mystery behind it what happened to the tower what happened to the axis what happened to the phallus to the mystical phallus. So there you go. Something went wrong. Something went wrong. I mean, this is this is the um, the underlying mystery in Lovecraft as well. What I mean, if, if you read, for example, Mountains of Madness, you realize that um, the old ones fell off themselves. They they declined. There was a decline among the old ones, as Lovecraft wrote it or described it in his words. Uh, so something happened, and. Um, there, there was a, there was an event in 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 Earth history that changed um, the status quo um, and brought the status quo which we have today and the White Brotherhood being in charge of it. So there was a swap of things. By the way, uh, the polar always includes the swapping of genders as well. I mean, male becoming female, female becoming male. That's what we have today. What we're witnessing today, we're witnessing this 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 mix up of of genders which on the, on the unconscious level is, is a sign that uh, polar activity is going on, that there's something changing in the polar structure, metaphysical structure of the human mind and the human, the human energy field. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I think we'll call it there. We, maybe we should do another one of these, actually, because this is actually really interesting. It's really good. Um, but yeah, um, thanks to both of you for coming on. I've really um, enjoyed it. If, People want to find you online, Mario. Where's the best place? Yeah, symbolicstudies.com. 
And um, what do you have coming up, uh, Mr. Muller? Do you have uh, some uh, some new work you were saying about a sex magic book? Or no, a, a yoga book? Uh, well, I'm, I'm writing, <laughs> I wanted to write a book on Draconian prophets on Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. And um, bring the three together because they haven't been brought together yet in no book, nothing. I mean, it's just a, a blank, just a blank, a blank sheet, a blank paper. Yeah, I'm, I'm on it, you know. I'm, um, but I might, might publish. Um, I can say I might publish uh, Polaria again as a PDF, maybe in the future. Mm-hmm. Could be because the um, I've, I heard there are many people longing to have it. So um, why not? I mean, I'm working on it. Yeah, should, you should try and get a publisher to republish it, like a physical copy. Because, I mean, the second-hand market on that book is insane. It's like, I, I found a copy the other day, I think it was £1,400. So, you know, 1400 Yeah, that's a, yeah. I, I know, I know. So might, might, we might bring out a, a PDF uh, from the original, yeah, the original scan, scan actually as a PDF for, um, I don't know. Brilliant. 